hold your peace, okay? If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to that passage we looked at, Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We're only going to deal with one verse. You say, good, we might get out of here in time if he deals with just one verse. Well, there's 22 we've got to talk about before we get to that one verse. <laughs> but I'm not going to read them all, and I'm not going to deal with them. I've entitled this message, Transgressions Blotted Out. We'll, we're going to deal with this in depth. Transgression blotted out, sin not remembered. I, I tell you, if that's the God that every man's got to deal with, I would think it's important we know and understand what's being taught to us from the Word of God. You know, when it comes to this all-important matter of eternal life, of salvation, we have to be certain, based on God's testimony, that our hope of salvation, and I want to be as clear as I can be on these things, you know, the question you need to ask yourself is, what is my hope of salvation? What gives me assurance in my heart and in my mind and my understanding if, if my life in this present world were to end right now, what hope do I have that I'll stand with God in glory? That I'll be accepted by God and not cast out of His presence. And it's critical that we understand and we know. We know our hope of salvation and we know that our hope of salvation is a good hope through grace. This hope which all God's elect possess is the same hope the Apostle Paul referred to in this manner. Listen, he says, For we are saved by hope. Hope to my generation, hope to most religious people. You know what it is? It's a wish. It's a desire. It's I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been faithful enough. I hope I've been loving enough. Hope in the scriptures is used here when he says we are saved by hope. That word by hope in the original means a confident expectation of receiving that which is promised. Big deal difference between a wish, isn't it? We're saved by a confident expectation of that which we've been promised, but hope that is, that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? I tell you, I've been walking in this life of faith for about, about 37 years now. And the more I study God's Word, the more convinced I am that we have to remove man. And by I'm talking about remove man. I'm talking about man's character and his conduct. We have to remove that from what the scriptures call salvation. He was, oh, don't say things like that. I, I, I hope by God's grace you, you can see, or he'll enable you to see, because that's the only way you're going to see. I, can't, I, I can tell you about it, can't make you see it, bud. Can't do it. I can point you to him, I can direct you to him. I can be like a signpost on the, on the road to the city of refuge. But you still got to follow the sign. And the only way you're going to follow the sign, he's got to lead you by a way you do not know. He's got to direct your heart, your mind, and your understanding. You know, one, one of the most prominent saints that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, 
He believed and taught the same exact truth. Listen to these verses that he wrote. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus. You don't hear this in most churches. And put no confidence in the flesh. Huh? That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I think he makes it clear here. He says, is the law then against the promises of God, the Ten Commandments, the, the moral law, the mosaic economy, everything included in it, the 635 ceremonial laws, plus the Ten Commandments, plus the priesthood, plus the sacrifices, plus the ceremonies, plus all the rituals, the festival days, Passover, all of it. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid for if there had been a, listen to this, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness would have came how? It came by the law. It's the only way it could have been. How many people do you know trying their dead level best, getting up every single solitary moment of their life, you too before the grace of God was revealed to you? Getting up this morning, putting on their Ten Commandments coat, flexing and getting ready to go out and try to keep it perfectly and completely through the day. And then at the end of the day, either tricking themselves or lying to themselves that they have kept it or devastated that they failed it. Without hope. We have a good hope through grace. See, that's the difference. He says this. He wrote to a young preacher, Titus. And he said to Titus, listen, not by works of righteousness which we have done. I don't question that we do works of righteousness. I'd say our coming together to worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. That's work of righteousness. We wouldn't be here for any other reason. To love God, to love our neighbor, that's works of righteousness. That's our responsibility. And we, by God's grace, to seek it, do it. We seek to do it. Every day we seek to do those things that honor and glorify our God. Whatsoever you do, whatsoever you say, he said this, whatsoever you work, do it all. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. But he says here, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy. Get that in your mind. According to his mercy. He saved us. Our Lord looked at the scribes and Pharisees, the most religious, moral, upright generation that existed at his time, and he told them, he said, go learn this. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. My generation turns it around. You know what they put the emphasis on? We'll give our sacrifices. And God says, no, I'm showing mercy. It'll be mercy or it'll be hell on earth. That's all there is. By his mercy, he saved us. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration. That's the new birth. And the renewing of the Holy Ghost. What's that? That's conversion. Which he, listen to this, which he hath shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the language that being justified, declared righteous by His grace, we should be made heirs according, there's that word again, to the hope 
eternal life. Huh. That's good news for me. Might not be good news to you. It's good news to me. Been good news to me since the very first time I heard it. Let me be as clear as I can be on this point. We must never, and by never I mean never, we must never think, we must never teach, and we must never entertain the error that what a sinner does or even what is done in the sinner by God the Holy Spirit makes up any part of a sinner's justification and salvation before the true and living God. That would get me run out of 99% of the churches on this planet. Well, what about what we're doing? Did you not hear what I just said? Do you not hear the word of the Lord? Now, the self-righteous, those who put so much stock in some great change that's occurred in their lives or in some experience that they went through either as a child or as a young adult, I know they'll say, well, you're against God's law. You don't care how, me, how we live. They, they'll make that accusation. Like I've been told for years and years, they, they've told me this through the years when they, people heard me preach, and they say, you don't put enough of an emphasis on personal obedience. Or they'll accuse us of this. You don't, I've had this one recently, you don't talk about the law enough. I tell you what, if you want to, Talk about the law, I got nothing for you. I don't. But let me ask those those of you that's been under me for the last 30 plus years, 36 plus years, it's going to be 37 years that I've had the privilege of serving as pastor of this church. In the last 36 plus years, do we not teach personal obedience? You ever, you ever heard me say one time, it don't matter how you live? You ever saw me by my actions prove to you that I think it doesn't matter how we live? Do, do, have you ever heard me speak disparagingly? What's well, a hard word to say? Disparagingly of God's holy law. I, I, I'm like the Apostle Paul. The law is holy, just, perfect, and good. And it can only demand perfect obedience. That's all it can do. Nothing wrong with that but it can't provide me any power to keep it. People seem to think if we stick it up on the wall, somehow or another it's going to rub off on us. And I, the majority of people in the United States think that the downfall of the United States is when we took the Ten Commandments out of the schools and out of the public building. That ain't got nothing to do with that. The problem is... This thing's getting worse because God Almighty purposed it to be worse. We, I get so tired of people saying, well, we're a God-feared nation. Now, they fear some God, they don't fear this God. They think God will somehow or another clear the guilty. God has to make the guilty righteous. That's the only way He can clear us. He's not, he's not pretending that I'm righteous. He's made me righteous. In his dear son. But here's the thing. We do not, no, we, we, we ever, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, 
And I think you wouldn't stand for it if I fell out dead and somebody came in behind me. As long as this grace pulpit stands in Ruston, Louisiana, we will never teach that a, that a sinner should look to their own personal obedience or any improvement in their lives as a cause or hope of their eternal security. Nor should they look to any of those things done by them for their comfort. And they certainly shouldn't look to them as evidence that they're saved. Your evidence is what? The testimony of God. This is the record that he hath given to us eternal life. He's given it to us. No conditions. And his life, this life that he's given to us, where is it at? It's in his son. That, that's your proof that you're saved. Do you believe the record? You believe the record, you got God. If you don't believe the record, you don't have the son. It's not, well, I'm not a drunk. I'm not a liar. I, I don't cheat on my wife. I go to church every Sunday. I'm moral. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. I'm every, everybody likes me. Everybody thinks I'm good as gold. Wrong hope. Matter of fact, that's no hope. None. The justified saint should and must look only to Christ and his righteousness for all of salvation. Folks, salvation from first to last, from alpha to omega, is just like Jonah declared it to be in that whale's belly. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Ray, I just looked at my watch and I saw I just preach one of them introductions you talked about. <laughs> As an introduction, put a period there, okay? Now on to the verses, okay? <laughs> now in this 43rd chapter of Isaiah, God talks about his chosen people, Israel. Calls them Jacob, calls them Israel. Now these people that he called Israel, they're, they're not a reference. Now I want you to follow me, follow me because this is where everybody gets so mixed up on so many things in the Scripture. These people that he calls and refers to as Jacob and Israel, it's not a reference to every single solitary individual that did and would make up that group of individuals over there that stand on a little plot of land in the Middle East called National Israel. That's not what he's talking about. It's a reference to who? It's a reference to God's true Israel, the Israel of God. Chosen sinners out of every kindred, nation, tongue, and people on the planet of the earth from the beginning of time until the end of time. I, I put it like this. John in John 3.16 referred to this Israel. And he referred to them with this word. For God so loved the world. Who? Israel. All of them. Past, present, and future. Now you think back to those verses we read this morning in the call to worship in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 22. Well, we're through verse 21. You think back, think back to them. Think back what we read. Listen to this. Fear not, I have redeemed thee. I've called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. He says, when thou walkest through the waters, I'll be with thee. Now that does apply to me. But if you go back and you read these verses, read them closely. Read what he says here. When he makes this statement, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and from the west. Who, who's he talking about? His servant. Who's the servant? 
not Israel, it's Christ. That's who he's talking about. This is all about Christ. So can't we say that everything that we read in verses 1 through 22, it, it's declaring to us God and his servant, his work. See, they've made salvation about what we do. I was watching that program last night. I finished it up on Hillsong Church. They had, in one single year, Kenny, they had like, like 1.3 million people accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I don't know how you track that kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember back in, when I was a kid, when old Billy Graham had all of his stuff on TV, you know, that when, when we were a religious nation, big-time religion, before most people got completely out of even false religion. But they'd get up there, and he'd get to the end. You know what he'd do? They'd, they'd play Just As I Am 14,000 times. And folks would just, y'all, come on down up out of the island. People would flow in these big cities, you know, New York and you know, Los Angeles. People just flowing down to the front, just hundreds of them. I thought, whatever happened to all of them folks? Where'd they all go? But see, that's the thing. You make a profession of religion, it go away. This don't ever go away. When this grasps your heart by God's grace, it's got you forever. But can't we say that all of that's talking about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the God who saves? Because that's what this is all about. It's not about what will you do for Jesus. Did you hear that a lot in false religion? Or what you considered religion? What will you do with Jesus? I tell you what, it ain't up for you to do anything with him. It's what will he do with you is what they ought to be asking. Because I tell you what, if it's got anything to do with us, we're done. Every one of us. Everybody sitting in this building, this man standing in this pulpit, the Pope, all of us, we're done. Every one of us. But look at verse 22 through verse 24. He's, he's talked about his, his chosen seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 22 through to verse 24, He says this, that thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. What is this? This is a complaint of the true and living God that saves by grace and mercy against his chosen people, Jacob and Israel. You think about this. Everything that Isaiah wrote in these three verses, 22, 23, 24, it shows us that God would be just to condemn these people for their disobedience. But here's the thing. The sinfulness and rebellion of man, even God's redeemed, is an opportunity for God to reveal to us and to all what? The greatness of his grace. Now look at our text. I... And you'll see, even as in italic, verse 25, I, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. 
and will not remember thy Savior. You know, this is the second time in this chapter that God moved his servant Isaiah to record the same words. Back up in verse 11, he said, I, I am the Lord, and beside me, now listen to this, beside me, this, this Lord that shows mercy to the guilty and gives grace to those that are unworthy, he said, beside me, what? There's no Savior. There's none. When I see the Lord referred to in this way, the, the word, he says, I am. It always carries my mind back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, to the father of the faithful, Abram, when God first revealed himself to Abram, not Abraham, Abram, before he changed his name. And this God, this God in Isaiah 43 said to Abram, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. I don't care about any city over the hilltop, mansion over the hilltop. I ain't worried about finding any of my old dead relatives. Me and my wife talk about this a lot as we age. When, when I go or if she goes, whichever way this thing works out one day, she ain't going to be up there waiting, looking for me, and I'm not going to be up there waiting, looking for her. I'm looking for the lamb. Huh? I'm going to be up there with those, or she'll be up there with those just men made perfect, following the lamb whithersoever he goes. We're going over here. I'm going where the lamb's going. I want to be with the lamb. She didn't save me. I didn't save her. He did it in its entirety. Folks, Abraham was not looking for that piece of property over there. He wasn't looking for a physical land. What was he looking for? He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God Almighty. That's what his desire was. That was his hope. And his hope is what? It's my hope. It's your hope. But I think the importance of the way the Lord states this in our text rests in the fact God references himself twice. He says, I, not enough emphasis, I am. I am he that blotteth out thy sins. It's double emphasis where he repeats his, his pronoun twice. <laughs> he chooses a pronoun. His is I. He refers to himself twice as I. I am he. This double emphasis stresses importance which should give special attention to something. Consider this. These sinners called Jacob and Israel had done everything worthy of God's just condemnation. They're told by this God who would have been just in condemning them twice in a row back to back that God alone is the hope and cause of their redemption and their reconciliation. He doesn't tell them to look to themselves. He doesn't call on them to improve themselves. He didn't call on them to try harder. He told them what? Look to him for salvation. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Turn over one chapter, a couple chapters to Isaiah 45. 
Look at verse 20. Every time I stand up and preach the gospel, I think about Paul on Mars Hill. And then people out there, they were so worried about offending some god, they had that statue erected that said to an unknown god. And Paul stood up and he told him, he said, that unknown god that you ignorantly worship, I'm going to tell you about him. (laughs) I'm going to make it clear. That's what preaching the gospel is. It's telling people about a god they don't know about by nature. Look at this. Assemble yourselves, verse 20, and come, draw near together, you that are escaped of the nation that have no knowledge. That's important. They have no knowledge. And that what Paul's complaint against Rome, the Israelites, the Jewish nation was, those who had the law and trying to keep the law. In Romans chapter 10, he says, For I there bear them record, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have no knowledge that set up a wood of their graven image and pray unto a God. Here's here's what most people today are doing. They're praying to a God that cannot save. He offers salvation. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to let Him save you. Won't you let Him save you? That's not the God of this book. Tell ye and bring them near, verse 21. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there's no God else beside me. Now, who is this God? Who's the God of your salvation? Here he is. He better be a just God and a Savior. There's none beside this one just God and a Savior. But thank God, look what he said, verse 22. Look unto me. Look unto me who? A just God and a Savior. And be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there's none else. Same's true in every generation of God's redeemed is revealed by the Apostle Paul. He says this, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such great cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Which one's the one that so easily besets us? Unbelief. I find myself every moment of my day, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And let us run the race with patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and completer, and in in italics it says of our faith. But in the original, it's Jesus looking unto Jesus, the author and the completer of faith. And if you'll recall, that faith that he's the author and completer of is defined for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can't see salvation, can you? But faith tells me it's real. And faith tells me there was a Savior. There is a Savior. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse is so filled with so much truth. He says, I am, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Listen to this verse. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. And as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. 
King David used it like this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Here we go. Blot out my transgressions. Words used by King David in that verse from Isaiah that I read to you and in our text, they bear the the idea of a ledger that has somebody's debts written in it. And those debts, when he talks about he blots them out, it means they're literally scratched out or they draw a line through them, what they mean, canceling the debt. But in reality, when you look a little deeper at these words, it means a whole lot more than that. It actually means to obliterate or to wipe out or better yet, to wipe out of one's memory. Gone. Our English word obliterate, according to Webster, it means to destroy utterly, to wipe out, cause to become invisible. Here's the thing. All my transgressions, all of them. I mean, all of them. You talking about all of them? Yeah, I'm talking about all of them. Because here's the thing. When this transaction occurred, when Christ said it is finished, all of my future, my sins were, like Kenny said at the funeral, that they were yet future then. Right? So all my transgressions are so perfectly put away that they're no longer remembered by my God. He will turn again. I love this passage. I can hear Henry in my mind. I hear Henry in my, mind, my ear right now. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. I always remember Henry saying he'd put up a sign and says no fishing because we're constantly casting back there, aren't we? Dredging back. Thank God he don't dredge, dredge things back up. We tell people, I forgive you. The next argument we have, what's the first thing we bring up? What we said we'd forgot. Been married? We do that, don't we? We're worse than elephants. We don't. We remember everything, and it always comes back up at the worst times. Huh? Surely you think about this. This can't rest on me. Any way, shape, form, or fashion. Can't rest on my obedience. It can't rest on my religious efforts. The only way God can and did blot out or obliterate from his memory my sins or my transgressions was as he dealt with them perfectly and completely in the person of my substitute, my surety. Go learn what that word means. You need to know from the scriptures what a surety is. My surety, my representative man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He hath laid on him, Isaiah said, the iniquity of us all, and by his stripes we are healed. Our sins and our transgressions are not, nor will they ever be laid to our account. Why? Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree completely when he justified us by his obedience unto death. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, for we read it every time we take the Lord's table, for by one offering he hath perfected forever, how long? Forever. Them that are sanctified, set apart by God for his glory. But notice what he says next. He says, 
why he did this. I'll blot it out your transgression because you want me to. No. Notice, no, for my own sake. For my own. You think about it. The one who wrote the law, the one who gave the law by Moses, the one whose law has been broken by all mankind, the one who hates all sin, the one who is infinitely just, the one, this is, this is the one that just sticks in my mind, the one who will by no means clear the guilty is the same God who delights and actually glories in his forgiveness of sin in a way that glorifies and honors him and his redemptive character as a just God and a Savior. Listen to me, nobody can forgive sin but God. Huh? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Let's repeat it again in another epistle. Even the forgiveness of sins. That's Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. I'm not sure who said it. I stole it just like I steal everything else from everyone. I'm a religious thief, Kenny. Is what I am. But it's still true. And I think about this a lot, especially when I'm in prayer confessing my sin to my God. Confessing your sins can't bring forgiveness. Did they tell you that? All you got to do is confess your sin. Confession don't put away sin. Tears of remorse can't forgive sin. Esau sought repentance, wept with bitter tears. Promising to do better can't put away sin. And I'll even go one step further. Even doing better can't put away sin. According to God's own word, this text, God forgives sins. Why? For his own sake. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He wasn't taking us back from the devil. He was making us presentable to himself. I love what old, old author Kenneth, this is one for you to check me up on this week. You, I know you'll write me later in the week and tell me, do you know, the, you know who said that? I didn't give the author credit for it, but I'm still going to steal what he said. He says, forgiveness is not procured by anything of the creature. Not by riches, not by righteousness, not by repentance, not by faith, not by obedience, not to any ordinance. It is not for the sake of these that the Lord forgives sin, but for his own sake and the Son's sake, which is the same. It is an instance of unmerited and distinguishing grace. It flows from the free grace of God. It is a branch of the covenant of grace. It is through the blood of Christ and yet according to the riches of His grace. It is for the glory of His divine perfections of justice, truth, faithfulness, as well as His grace and His mercy. And after such a list of sins of omission and commission, to hear such language as this is surprising grace indeed. What he said of them in chapter 20, 43, verse 22 to 24. And then he turns around and shows them grace. And he said, I will not remember thy sins. The last part of this verse. What a comfort and truth to a sinner. Are you a sinner this morning? See, that's, that's the thing. 
I got something for sinners. Christ did come to call those that thought they were righteous to salvation. He called to call, came to call and save sinners. The greatest apostle of all said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Paul, am the chief. I'm the top, I'm the worst. And I'm like, what was Paul's sin that was so bad that he would address himself as the chief of sinners? He said it like this. I know that in me, in my flesh, well, it's no good thing. I'm fed up with good people. I am. I have hope. Lord offers hope to sinners, pure and simple. We're still sinners every moment of our lives, are we not? None of us, none of us, your pastor included, none of us love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, every moment of our day. Do you, if you think you have, you're a liar to yourself and you're a liar before God because God says if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar and his truth's not in you. Sin still affects every area of our lives, even as justified saints. Some of you ladies might be worried right now about your roast burning on the stove somewhere. Or maybe some of us are worried about, he's gone so long we'll be way behind the lunch lines <laughs> out there at the restaurants today. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And there's not one of us here this morning that's loved our neighbor as ourselves. Would you like the Apostle Paul find yourself constantly thinking in your mind, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I want to do these things, don't you? I want to love God with all my heart. I want to love my neighbors myself. I want to serve God perfectly and completely every single solitary waking of my moment of my life. But I can't. The good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that's exactly what I find myself doing. But this one phrase, you think about it, will not remember thy sin. This one phrase encourages you and me as sinners to take heart and be a good cheer in spite of ourselves and our remaining sinfulness. The true and living God, you know what He does? Unlike us, He forgives and He forgets. Forgives and He forgets. Solomon put it like this, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Will not remember thy sins forever. But he doesn't stop there. Nothing can be put to it, nor can anything be taken from it. And God doeth it this way. Why? That men should fear before him. That's the thing. You know this God, you know that that God will not overlook any sin. Every sin you've ever committed, God dealt with it in strict justice. He must. Now, here's the thing, and I, we'll, we'll quit with it. God will not, at some point in time, reach back into some old ledger book and drag back up something that you did when you were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of age. It's just not going to happen. God won't remember the sins of his people again Seeing what's he done? He's forgiven them of their sins for his own sake. Listen, his glory's at stake in this thing of salvation. 
You think he's going to stake that on us? He swore by himself. When he could swear by no other, he swore by himself. According to his covenant and his oath. And what's he sworn? He will never punish us because he punished us perfectly and completely in our surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this verse. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What, what's God's love? You ever thought about that? Let me show it to you in the New Testament. Here ends love. Not that we love God. Everybody tells me all the time about how much they love God. Here ends love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his son. And it, it has to be. Words are important. To be is in italics. It's not a potential for salvation. He sent his son into this world, the propitiation for our sin. What, the perfect satisfaction to his own law and justice for his people. I think Paul put it best, and I'll quit with this, for I am persuaded, I am convinced, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. If I've left out anything else, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? It's only found one place. Which I told, was talking to Kenny about this last night. It wasn't last night, yesterday afternoon at the wedding. This thing of... God, God doesn't rejoice in us individually in our own persons. He rejoices in us as we are where? In His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God loves the Son. And if we're in the Son, God's love's upon us. And if we're not in the Son, you know what? The wrath of God abides on us. I think this is the love that God rests in, that love. His love and sin in His Son. And this love's found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the only thing a sinner needs. It's the only thing a sinner wants. And it's the only thing a sinner can and will ever look to as their only hope and cause of salvation from first to last. Jonah got it right. Salvation is of the Lord. May the Lord bless his word. Bless you as you travel to your appointed places. Join us again this next Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday for our Bible conference. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. I appreciate your presence. But if you would dismiss your pleasure.